X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Friday, May 21st. Today, back in the day, on May 21st, 1927, Charles Lindbergh completed the first nonstop solo flight across the Atlantic. Accomplishing the flight won him the Orteg Prize, a $25,000 bounty for the first to do it. This prize was offered by Raymond Orteg, a wealthy New York hotel owner. Lindbergh took off from Roosevelt Field in New York the previous day and completed a 3,600-mile trip in about 33 and a half hours. He landed the Spirit of St. Louis, a single-engine monoplane, at Le Bourget Aerodrome outside Paris. The flight faced many challenges throughout. He barely cleared some telephone wires when he took off from the muddy airfield. He then struggled through storm clouds, dealt with the icing of the craft, and even flew blind in the fog for several hours using dead reckoning. He hadn't brought along radio navigation gear because it was too heavy and unreliable. The plane needed to be as light as possible since he was bringing along 450 gallons of fuel. 150,000 people stormed the airfield when he landed, hoisting him up on their shoulders for half an hour in celebration. The accomplishment catapulted the 25-year-old Army Corps reservist airmail pilot to unprecedented levels of fame. That fame would lead to tragedy and difficulties with the kidnapping of his infant son and the backlash he suffered for neutralist views during World War II. And today, back in the day on May 21st, 1932, five years to the day after Lindbergh, Amelia Earhart became the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. Earhart set off on the previous day from Harbor Grace, Newfoundland, with the intent of getting to Paris. She had a copy of that day's paper, the Telegraph Journal, with her to confirm the date. Her flight also experienced many difficulties, including strong winds, ice, and mechanical problems. After almost 15 hours in the air, she was forced to land in a pasture outside of Derry in Northern Ireland. When the farmhands who witnessed her landing asked her, have you flown far? She replied, from America. Earhart received the Distinguished Flying Cross from Congress, among other awards, and would also achieve unparalleled levels of fame. Unfortunately, she disappeared somewhere over the Pacific in 1937 while trying to become the first female to circumnavigate the globe. Her remains have never been found. Today's episode will start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Alex Zelensky, news editor of the Portland Mercury. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Here's a kicker. Looks like there'll be a kicker. Here's something unexpected. It looks like Oregon tax revenue will be $1.2 billion more than expected. That's 10% more than expected. A kicker is triggered when estimates exceed 2%. State economist Josh Lehner told lawmakers on Wednesday, quote, there is no long-run damage associated with the COVID pandemic and the recession. Further demonstrating the state's booming revenues, Oregonians are estimated to receive a $1.4 billion personal kicker credit on their 2021 taxes. 
the median Oregonian is projected to receive a kicker rebate of $312 on their 2021 taxes. Here's your daily dose of data. The OHA reported yesterday that Oregon has a seven-day running average of administering 29,005 vaccine doses. And as of May 19th, 39% of Oregonians have been fully vaccinated. Though Multnomah County has vaccinated 65% of its residents that are 16 and older, it will not move to the low-risk category. As we reported earlier in the week, Multnomah County health officials did not submit an equity plan to ensure vaccines are provided for underserved communities, which was a requirement for moving to low risk. Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kofori defended the decision and said she was worried about rushing the plan before it was ready. According to Kofori, quote, this component of the state's newest framework must be developed intentionally. And that is going to take more than three days. Five more Oregon counties voted to become part of Idaho. On Tuesday, Baker, Grant, Maller, and Sherman counties elected to join Idaho. In recent years, communities in southeastern Oregon have become disenchanted by what they describe as a sweeping liberalist agenda. Many rural Oregonians blame urban areas, like Portland, for a rise in political and social views they say they don't agree with. And they've now decided to leave Oregon altogether in favor of our conservative neighbor to the east. According to Mike McCarter, spokesperson for the Greater Idaho Movement, Tuesday's vote, quote, proves that rural Oregon wants out of Oregon. But for this plan to succeed, rural Oregonians will need to gain approval from both the Oregon and Idaho legislatures, as well as Congress. Advocates for the Greater Idaho Movement have not yet addressed how Idaho will support an additional five counties in its infrastructure. Judges dismissed claims that federal officers used excessive force against volunteer medics. In July 2020, the ACLU of Oregon filed a suit on behalf of four volunteer medics. The suit alleged the federal officers used unnecessary force against them and directly and repeatedly targeted them. Some of the medics called it a violation of their First Amendment right and said they no longer felt safe attending protests. But earlier this week, two U.S. district judges dismissed all but a few of their allegations. According to U.S. District Judge Karen Immergut, the feds were justified in their use of pepper balls and tear gas because the medics had refused dispersal orders. Immergut also questioned the medics' claims that federal officers had targeted them. In her ruling, Emmergut wrote that the medics, quote, admittedly positioned themselves right next to protesters in areas which pose the most risk of harm, rather than standing apart from the crowd, undermining the suggestion that their harm was the result of intentional targeting. The ACLU of Oregon subsequently released a statement saying that they were disappointed with the ruling. They described the federal officer's treatment of protesters last summer as a, quote, constitutional nightmare. The former Tigard police officer who shot and killed Jacob McDuff has been fired from the Port of Portland police. Gabriel Montanato started at the Port of Portland at the end of April after resigning his position with the Tigard police department. He had been with the Tigard police department for 15 years. At the time, Montanato was still under investigation for the January 6th shooting of Jacob McDuff. 
OPB reported that he had started his new position while still under investigation, and that led to his being placed on leave until his termination. Newly uncovered documents revealed that the Port of Portland was directly told that Montanato had been cleared in the investigation, which was not the case. He had started the hiring process with the Port of Portland before the shooting. The case has been turned over to the Oregon Department of Justice. The Oregon Attorney General's office received the case files last week and has not yet made a decision on the charging. And some good news. It was announced this week that Portland will host the Women's International Champions Cup in August. The international tournament will attempt to crown the best women's club soccer team in the world. To make the Champions Cup, a team must have won its respective league or qualifying tournament. The Thorns will host at Providence Park and qualified by winning the 2020 NWSL Fall Series. The other three teams that will join them are Olympic Lyonnais, the defending WICC champs who won the 2020 UEFA Women's Champions League and 2020 D1 Feminine in France. FC Barcelona Femini, who won the 2020 Primera Division in Spain and the Houston Dash, who took home the 2020 NWSL Challenge Cup. The European teams and American teams will face each other on August 18th, with the winners settling up a U.S. versus Europe final on August 21st. The losers will play in the third-place match right before it. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Coming up, host DJ Ambush and Morgan Jones speak with Alex Zielinski of the Portland Mercury about a Supreme Court ruling involving unanimous jury decisions and how that could impact hundreds of potentially unjustly incarcerated Oregonians. Good morning, Alex. How are you guys? Good morning. In April 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that criminal convictions made by a non-unanimous jury were unconstitutional. And on Monday, the Supreme Court clarified their decision. It would be up to states to decide whether the ruling should be applied retroactively. Alex? Yes? Please speak to us about this rule, how this ruling is affecting what? Oregonians. What in the world does a non-unanimous jury mean? Yeah, so a non-unanimous jury is... Um, not unanimous, which right now when, uh, or usually when there's a, a jury, um, you know, of 12 people um, regarding a really a serious crime, you know, a murder uh, accusation, you have to have the whole jury um, unanimously agree that either this person was guilty or not guilty. Um, and that's been uh, the law of the land in every state but Oregon for decades, for years. Um, in Oregon, uh, along with a few other states that have now since gotten rid of the um, the policy, um, since the, the 30s allowed um, those serious verdicts to move forward if, uh, if, you know, if two people out of the 12 jurors disagreed and if there wasn't unanimity in uh, in the jury. So, you know, two people could say, well, no, I really don't think this guy murdered someone. Um, and then the, the other 10 um, could really agree that they did. And that would still be um, the verdict. 
that, you know, this person was guilty, which um, is really rooted, and, and that policy is really rooted in um, in some of Oregon's white supremacist roots, hmm. that, um, you know, in, in Oregon, where there's a small uh, black population and population of people of color, in a jury pool, usually there's a very small representation of non-white jurors. And so when um, there's someone on trial, uh, traditionally if there's, you know, um, someone on trial who is not white and then there's only a few minority people, maybe one or two people in the jury who are not white um, who believe that this person is not guilty, and the majority of people on the jury um, believe that this person is, um, perhaps because of racial bias mm-hmm. and their own, um, you know, beliefs about what what this person did. Um, that person could still go to jail, and so <laughs> it was. And it was introduced to work that way. It was introduced in Oregon. It was introduced in Louisiana as a gym, you know, during the Jim Crow. Um, South period and introduced in Oregon as a way to kind of make sure that uh, minority voices were silenced on a jury. Uh, And last year in April, like you mentioned, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that non-unanimous juries um, were unconstitutional. And even the most conservative uh, justices in the Supreme Court, you know, straight up called it a racist policy mm. and Amazing. Uh, you know uh, white supremacist policy and, and um, under undermined the, the constitutionality of it which was a, a huge win um, for Oregon because Oregon remains the only state that still at the time when this ruling was made the only state that still um, had non-unanimous juries and, and data shows um, collected by uh, a, a number of folks but specifically out of Lewis and Clark's law school uh, clinic that has shown the majority of people who, um, since that Supreme Court ruling passed, uh, majority of people who have requested their cases be reheard because mm. of the unconstitutionally, because they were convicted through a non-unanimous jury, um, that they were black. And... So kind of looking back, you can see the impact of non-unanimous juries in Oregon on um, the number of people who it, you know, stuck with a, with a criminal record. And a lot of these people are, um, you know, people who were already appealing their, mm-hmm. um, their case, who are, you know, actively appealing their incarceration during the time of this. Supreme Court ruling in April last year, mm. um, their cases um, are kind of actively being reconsidered um, by the Attorney General. But for mm. anyone before that time, before this arbitrary date of you know April, I think it was April twentieth, twenty twenty, no one, you know, there was a question of if since this you know, um, rule has been made unconstitutional and deemed unconstitutional, shouldn't it also consider be considered for people who um, were uh, incarcerated mm-hmm. using those, uh, those guidelines, yeah. 
uh, non-unanimous juries before that point. And so that was the question that the Supreme Court answered this week um, and basically said, no, there's no requirement to retroactively wow. uh, retry wow. cases for people who might be in jail right now or who might be, you know, just having a criminal record following them around right now um, for a potentially um, unfair and, you know, racist kind of jury system. Uh, so that, that news came as a disappointment to a lot of people who've been fighting to kind of get that rule um, used retroactively in Oregon. But there was also a piece of the Supreme Court ruling Monday that, that really guided states and said directly kind of, this is up to states to decide, and it's on states to decide whether or not they want to um, look back at those cases retroactively. Um, so it kind of places the burden now on the state attorney general's office, mm-hmm. um, who has been kind of historically really unclear about where she stands on um, looking back at those cases. Uh, so that's kind of where things stand as of today. They really hate looking backwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Alex, do we have any idea of how many incarcerated Oregonians could be affected by this ruling? Um, I know that about over 200 people have requested their cases to be retroactively um, um, considered. Basically, I think it's 226 people who've applied for relief after receiving non unanimous conviction. Um, I'm not sure the number of how many of them are incarcerated right now because a number of them could also have been formally incarcerated and mm. um, and now we're just really trying to clear their record because um, you know a record a criminal record can really follow someone around for a long time and, and impact their job and housing status and all these bits and pieces so um, but at least you know uh, 200 people, could be, could have their their case reconsidered, and um, you know, uh, it kind of shows the breakdown of how uh, disproportionately this has impacted Black Oregonians. Um, out of that 226 people, 17% of them are Black, um, despite you know Oregon's population being made up of just percent black residents mm-hmm. uh, and that's in Multnomah County um, there's uh, about 45 percent of the people who've applied for um, that relief to have their their case retried are black and and there's only six percent of um, Multnomah County residents are, are black and so <laughs> it really shows kind of who this has hurt and who this has has disproportionately, you know, convicted. You mentioned that uh, Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum has historically sort of not dealt with looking backwards. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think it's just avoiding making the decision herself? Like, what's the deal here? (laughs) (laughs) It's really hard to say, and I think a lot of organizations and kind of activists are trying to figure that out themselves and they have been for 
you know, the past year that this Supreme Court decision has been, um, law, you know, rule the, the land. Um, I think, you know, it's completely up to her to, um, she could just, you know, get out of bed today and say, all cases, all of these 200 plus cases can be retried. Like I declare it. Mm. Um, but she's not, you know, but, but she's kind of punting that decision to other places. Like she wants the Oregon Supreme court to consider it. She's talked about the state legislature being responsible for, for, um, making a, passing a bill that would declare this. Uh, it's, interesting because she definitely does have the power to politically um you know she is an elected official she's someone who has you know is, is, has been political in the past and has made decisions like this in the yeah. past um that impact the entire state um and by you know regarding how um a new legal policy is is interpreted um but she's hesitating here and it's it's unclear why Mm. I'm just yeah yeah <laughs> uh, the director of the criminal justice reform clinic at Lewis and Clark Law School Eliza Kaplan has analyzed the impact that race has played in cases involving non-unanimous juries what has Kaplan found yeah I mean um, kind of the, the same data I mentioned before about how um, uh, black Oregonians are really disproportionately represented in this data and I think that's important because there really hasn't been, you know, when a jury in the past, you know, um, decades that this, this uh, has non-unanimous juries has been okay in, in Oregon, there really isn't, um, you know, recording of what each time that a jury is non-unanimous, it's, it's not um, clear. You know, it's basically when uh, if two out of 10 people vote you know not guilty for someone um that record really isn't retained it's more or less just like was that person guilty or not guilty uh and so it's really hard to look back and and pick apart the different cases um where people were uh you, you know convicted because of a non-unanimous jury and so mm. the best way that um kaplan and, and the law clinic have been able to to track that those numbers are now seeing who is requesting um, relief under this new constitutional, mm. uh, you know, decision. So people who know that they have that they were convicted through a non-unanimous jury can now um, are now requesting the attorney general's office reconsider their case and retry their case with a fair jury, um, and so the Lewis and Clark kind of uh, a clinic is now um, tallying those numbers to try to reflect the uh, kind of who that population is and who it's made up of. If X-ray listeners want to get involved, how can they do so? Um, if, sorry, I missed the first part of that question. If, uh, if our listeners want to get involved, Oh yeah. What can they do? Yeah. Um, there's a couple campaigns going on right now to encourage the attorney general's office to, to apply retroactivity to these non-unanimous convictions. Uh, one of them is called still in prison. 
um, which I'd recommend folks getting up to speed on and um, and you can get involved there. There, there definitely is um, a space for political pressure to motivate the Attorney General to, to acknowledge these um, the lives of these people and, and, and the impact that these convictions have on, on Oregonians. Um, I'd say that's the best way to, to, to get up to speed. Thank you so much, Alex. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Have a lovely rest of your day. You too. too. X-Ray. Thanks to Alex for joining The Local. And a special thanks to our production team, executive editor Will Romy, Romy. supporting editors and writers John Collier, Nebraska Lucas, Joey McClone, Ryan Miller, Carlos Molina, Julia Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Miranda Selinger, and Ryder Sherwood. Thanks for original journalism and research by The Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Tribune, Portland Business Journal, KGW, The Willamette Week, Coin, Pamplin Media, OPB, K2, The Oregonian, Statesman Journal, and our news partners, Portland Mercury, Street Roots, Bike Portland, and Eater Portland. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. And thank you for subscribing and giving us a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.